0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back of house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today our guest is Andy Williams, another from the Soldier Hollow contingent and the first of two interviews this morning with someone with the surname of Williams. So, Andy, it's really uh, great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Doing great. I uh, very much appreciate the
1: opportunity to chat with you. And uh, we've had a wonderful time listening to uh, to everyone share their their memories. And, and it's also brought back a number of other uh, wonderful stories. And uh, helped us reminisce and even catch up with other people here over the last, uh, few months as, as you spoke with, uh, with
0: everyone. So this is, this has been great. Well, that's very kind of you. I'm glad to have you on and I'm glad that people are reconnecting. It's been a lot of fun to share memories and stories. And it's just been great, particularly during this crazy pandemic time. Now I have to say, Behind you, there's a shelf, and it's got a lot of sports memorabilia things on it. So, why don't you tell me a little bit about what all that is about, and what you're doing these days? For sure, for sure. Uh, a lot of what's behind me is is it, are those memories.
1: Um, it is uh, events of the past, uh, whether it was uh, at SEC football, basketball championships, uh, NCAA Final Fours. Um, I may actually uh, have a number of credentials that sit right there of just a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I think one of them in there is a roots concert from 2004. Um, you know, right after the games that I had worked and, um, but, uh, but, you know, that kind of leads me down to, you know, where I'm at today of, um, after leaving Salt Lake, uh, I just, uh, between my wife and I, we, we traveled all over the country. Um, Uh, Mostly for work, but uh, I worked at uh, the University of Houston in their athletics department, University of Virginia in their athletics department, Um, worked for a couple of different uh, sports marketing agencies here in Atlanta. Um, But currently, actually, I uh, started my own agency um, here in Atlanta, um, right in the middle of this pandemic. Um, You know, brilliant timing, you know, of, hey, this is a great time to go off on my own. Let's let's uh, start a consulting firm and, and help out. But, um, you know, it's actually been, been very fulfilling, uh, to, to now, um, after all of this time and experience to, to sit back and go, you know, we're in a challenging point in time, uh, in, a, in here in the country. And many people are losing jobs and trying to figure out what to do next and where to go next. And, uh, so I saw it as an opportunity as much as anything to open my own agency and, and now reach out to those people who still have a, a level of work they have to accomplish uh, for their clients and and say, Hey, I can fill this gap uh, for you. So um, I started Clearwell Consulting in August and um, got a handful of clients projects that we're working on already. And uh, just living the dream. I'm getting ready to have a 16-year-old son here on Friday, so I'm um, just kind of freaking me out a little bit.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, there's a lot to time packed there. So first of all, congratulations to you and your son. 16. That's a big number. That's a big day. And uh, uh, what is it like there in Georgia with driving? Is 16 the is the is that the age for driving?
1: Yes. 16 is the age. Uh, there are some requirements inside of that, um, of you've had to have had your learner's permit for a full year and spent 60 hours driving and, uh, gone through a, a couple of different uh, courses and such, but, uh, we've, we've done our year. Um, I believe our driving test is November 4th. So, uh, let the, let the stress begin, um, of, uh, sending a child out onto the roads so
0: (laughs) (laughs) well is he excited or a little bit apprehensive
1: he's excited he's very excited uh he he definitely reminds me of me at that age of uh the freedom that you get with going out on your own and and doing you know being with your friends and kind of doing what you want a little bit more it'll be uh it'll be tense um you know but uh but he's more than ready he's more than ready
0: Uh, that's fantastic. Well, I've had four children go through that and a couple of them were apprehensive or didn't really care that much. And then the others were just chomping at the bit. They could not wait to get on the road and drive. So that's really a lot of fun. Tell me a little bit more about this agency. What is it exactly that you provide? What are the services that you're delivering for your clients? For sure. Well,
1: what, uh, what I, what I took oddly enough over the last 20 years is what i what I began to realize is is I created experiences for people, um, whether it was, uh, and we'll get into this, whether it was the Western experience uh, that Phil Jordan you know, brought out of his mind and that uh, was created, um, or whether it was uh, different experiences that we created for clients, be it Harley Davidson or Coca-Cola um, or Delta Airlines, whatever the case may be. Um, and I always wanted to try to find a unique way to create those experiences, whatever that looked like for the client. For the last three years or so, I've primarily been in the digital agency space. Um, So my experience, while it's not necessarily at a venue or in person, my experience now lives, pardon me, lives in this little box, uh, you know, that is our laptop and our, and our phone. And it's been, um, you know, interesting to see all of it come to life here during this pandemic because we... We all are on our laptops more, um, and we all are marketing uh, much more uh, you know, via podcasts you know, like this. And, uh, and so it's been great to, to, to take clients down a new pathway and a new journey of... You know, you don't have to be radio, TV, print anymore, um, especially traditional clients. We've got a couple of uh, agriculture clients, and that's what they know are radio, TV, print, um, or just radio and print. So to be able to introduce them into a digital space of um, uh, digital advertising and how to reach clients through uh, a digital footprint and have them experience your brand in that footprint um, has been been very important. So we'll position our clients into podcasts like this, um, other speaking engagements where um, they may be chatting about uh, the agricultural industry or... Uh, the lighting industry uh, as another client uh, would be, uh, but then also doing online advertising and the the data and analytics that comes with all of that is to me the brilliance of of everything. Um, you know, I can truly look at a number and look at a, an advertisement and go, "This ad is really working," um, and I can look at another one and go, "This one is really not working." Um, so it's been been very good to kind of. Uh, be able to speak to clients uh, about the digital space because they get it because they're in front of their laptop a lot more than they used to be.
0: Yeah, so now it makes sense to me why, why business is actually doing okay for you. Not only is this space growing, but I guess during this pandemic, you know, people are looking for new ways to engage with their, with their client base or try to find uh, new clients. And so that's really, really interesting. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Now you mentioned creating experiences and the Western experience. Was iconic. We've had a lot of people on this podcast talk about that <laughs> experience. So I'm really eager to learn a little bit more about that and dive into the memories of Salt Lake 2002. So let's go ahead and hop into the, uh, what is it called? The Wayback Machine on the internet, you know, where you can yeah. see in the past. And uh, why don't we, why don't you take us all the way back to the 90s? What were you doing then? And how did you find your way to Salt Lake City?
1: Um, so uh, very interesting. Um, I, when I, I, I graduated college with my master's in 98, um, and I wanted to, um, be in college athletics. That was my dream. That was the goal. Um, but I had to complete an internship first and I ended up at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. You know, now it's gone, but it was, it was, it was our home. It was, uh, you know, where, where I got my start and was fortunate enough to get a full time job there. But in that, um, you know, we hosted some of the greatest events. Uh, You know, whether it's SEC football, basketball, uh, NCAA Final Fours, um, Super Bowls, etc. So over all those events, we ended up working with a number of the people that ended up in Salt Lake City, Um, specifically Jerry Anderson and what was then Anderson Consulting Team and Todd Barnes and, you know, so many great, great people from that group. That we met uh, during Super Bowls or other, you know, special events that we hosted at the Dome. So, for me, it was beginning to make those connections. Where it gets a little messy because I really hadn't thought about being at an Olympics was um, I started dating one of my coworkers. Um, everyone on listening to this podcast will know her as Karen Wright, um, who was the assistant general manager at the E Center. And uh, but we began dating behind the scenes. And she was actually offered a job uh, at Salt Lake um, in April of 2000. And we were kind of in that early dating stage of what do we do? Where do we go? Like, where's this relationship at? And um, for one reason or another, I was like, well, you know, if you're going to Salt Lake City, and you're taking this job, I was like, I'm going with you. Like, I know, I know enough people we've met. You know, Jerry Anderson's of the world. You know, I know enough people. I'm just going to go. Um, much to her chagrin. She did not like that idea. Um, she thought it would be great for me to stay here for two years. I could run a number of other great events. And uh, I said, no, no, no. Like, if this relationship's going to work, like, I'm just going to go and I'll, I'll figure it out. So that's what we did. Um, she went out on a job and I went out, for lack of a better way to put it, chasing her girl. <laughs> so um so when we got out there though i met everybody you know um just you know what was great about the salt lake culture was it was such a family um whether it was um people that were uh, moving to the area or whether it was uh local people uh that were involved uh at the event was everybody just kind of brought you in under their wing. And that was what was great to me about Salt Lake city as a whole was, uh, you were, you were just part of the family all of a sudden. So while we were out there, met a number of different people, obviously jobs are opening and there's options everywhere. And, uh, there was a job in, uh, in logistics, uh, material handling logistics. It was opening up. And so interviewed for the job, uh, with Larry Shank and Ron Delmont and Stuart Ash and, kind of made the gamut circle through everybody in logistics. And, uh, and lo and behold, uh, less than a month of being there, we were, I was full-time. So, uh, and what was great, I could, what I remember about the conversation and chatting with Larry is he goes, you know what's great is you look like a local hire because you already live here in Salt Lake City and it looks like we hired somebody locally to do this job, um, which was a big deal uh, to hire a local. Um, so it was, uh, even though it wasn't local, uh, it, it, it looked local, I guess at the end of the day from, from an eyeball standpoint. So you were
0: hired for the optics. Exactly. That's
1: it. I was hired for the optics or either they felt bad for me. Cause I had chased this girl all the way to Salt Lake city. And, uh, and, and, and they were like, well, this guy needs a job. Like, he, you know, who knows what's going to happen here with this relationship.
0: So let's just take care of him. <laughs> Well, it sounds like it was a win-win all the way around. So, congratulations on all counts. Uh, but I want to ask you, what was your first impression, Salt Lake City? Had you been out here before?
1: Um, it was first time in Salt Lake City. Um, I'd been a college basketball manager, um, so I would traveled everywhere, but it was more like a day trip. You know, it would be, hey, we're gonna fly into L.A., we're gonna land at you know, eight o'clock at night, we're going to play UCLA tomorrow afternoon at two and then we fly out. So I've, I've traveled a number of places around the country, but had never been to Salt Lake City. Um, the thing that caught me off was, um, the lack of trees, uh, being here in Atlanta. Um, we have trees everywhere. I mean, there are, you know, our interstates are just, you know, laden with trees. Um, and I can remember even coming back to Atlanta after being in Salt Lake and driving the streets around here and going, oh, my gosh, I feel, feel like the trees are falling in on us um, after being in Utah, where, you know, you drive up and it's beautiful and gorgeous, but it was a very different, beautiful and gorgeous. Um, uh, our mountains
0: out here are very different than, uh, than the mountains of Utah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a trade-off, right? We have fewer trees with taller mountains, so... All right. That that works. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the role specifically that you assumed and how you settled into that role? For sure. So
1: I uh, my first role uh, within the committee was in um, material handling and logistics. Um, everyone knew myself or Cherie or Coley Degler as, you know, the people coming in to lay the rooms out with FF&E, you know, furnishings, fixtures and equipment. How many tables and chairs do you need? Do you need a light? Are you sure you need a light? Like we questioned every single detail that went into that room because at the end of the day, we would use, you know we would roll up all of those totals of tables and chairs and information we gathered to say, hey, we need to order a thousand of these or two thousand of these or you know uh, can we use the venues, tables, and chairs, whatever the case may be to to outfit um, the space? i I found in all my notes, we called it the BLT. I have no idea what that acronym was. There were too many acronyms to come up with, but, uh, but it was the BLT, which was, I guess our process. Um, but I do not remember the acronym, but it was, you know, we would spend a lot of hours in meetings with the, the venue general managers and assistant general managers, and then each function lead of what do you want in your trailer or what do you want in your eight foot by 10 foot space to make you know life easier? Um, some of the the best times though that we had was uh, Sheree and I usually did weekly weekly notes um, back to, to Larry Shank. He was our, our boss. And uh, her and I had the best time of putting all these notes together of here's what we accomplished and here's what's going on or here's the gaps we've got. But we always um, made it a point to go through. There was a Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live skit back then called uh, Jack Handy, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Um, and this was pre-internet, you know, you couldn't search a whole lot, but you could search enough to be dangerous. But we had found this one site that had all of these deep thoughts by Jack Handy quotes. And our goal was to type up the report, drop the little deep thoughts on there. And then when we sent it to Larry, just to see if we could get a laugh out of him, because, you know, you always needed a laugh at the end of the day. So we always prided ourselves of, if we could get a laugh out of Larry, we knew that, okay, like, the notes were good, but you know what? The laugh worked, so we're going to keep doing this. So that was a, um, a something her and I used to always do, just to try to pass time.
0: <laughs> well, it makes it sound like the job is really boring, you know, like, well, you know, we have to entertain ourselves by including incorporating these <laughs> quotes, but most people, when they think about organizing Olympic Games, they don't really think of a job that way, so... Either you had a lot of time on your hands or you just (laughs) felt this real creative vibe and you just needed to address it by uh, incorporating these quotes, which I think is quite, quite interesting.
1: Yeah. uh, Sheree and I, um, we were two peas in a pod. I mean, we were, we, we cut up and we laughed and Larry was very much that way, um, as well too. Um, you know, so we were always looking for the laugh or looking for the gag, um, which was great. Um, but you know, after hours and hours of talking tables and chairs you had to you had to find something to to get a good laugh at every now and then so that was our uh, that was our way to pass to to pass time but
0: um so andy you're telling me about this story of uh submitting the quote or you know, in reports and things like that which i think is quite funny and interesting so clearly you guys had a sense of humor but were there any pranksters or practical jokers in your group
1: <laughs> um it, it, There were a lot of us, I think, that always thought of like pulling off something big or doing something great. But um, Janine and I, actually, once I was a part of uh, the event management team, um, uh, played a little practical joke on Phil. I don't even know if he knows knows this story. And I don't even know if Janine wants me to share, but we're going to dive in. Um, Janine and I uh, ran all of our team meetings for Soldier Hollow. And, um, Phil was notoriously late. Um, he was always double booked or booked for coming from one meeting to the next meeting. Um, so we would get the meeting started and then inevitably we would be halfway around the room. He would show up 20, 30 minutes late and then we'd start the meeting all the way over again. So we actually, um, it, it wore on us after a little while. So we kind of said, all right, we're going to, we're going to be done in 15 to 20 minutes today. Like we're going to knock this out. So we pre-planned the whole meeting where we had already talked with everybody. We already knew all of the updates, uh, the day before. So then when we came in for the 9am, we were set. So we come in, we've got our 9am meeting and, uh, we're going around the room and we, and you could tell like Janine and I had pace, you know, like, Steve, do you have anything? Phil, do you have anything such as such, Do you have anything like we're just trying to like move our way around the room because Phil was already late for the meeting and we wanted to be done. And, uh, we got all the way around the room. We're wrapping up. We're like, Hey, great. Like we're going to get another, you know, 45 minutes back in our day. This is going to be super. So we dismiss. And about the time we dismiss about four people get out and Phil walks his way in. He's like, Whoa, Whoa, Hey, where, where's everybody going? What are we doing? And, uh, Janine and I were both like, well, we already wrapped up. Like you, if you were here earlier, you would have caught the updates. Da da, da da And, um, and from that point on Phil found his way to get to the meeting a little earlier. Maybe he was five minutes late, but I think he, uh, he understood what Janine and I were getting as, Hey, we need you to be here because we don't want to be here another, another 30 minutes to an hour. So it wasn't as much of a practical joke as more of a, Hey, let's, uh, let's all try to be thoughtful of everybody here. But, um, but we always try to find a way to poke, poke fun with, uh, with Phil and get under his skin a little bit. So Janine and I were good at, good at that with him. I spent about four, four to five months within the, on the, on the logistics team. And just, you know, what I learned about them and kind of their role and, and is they played such a vital, vital part of pulling it all together you know especially once we got on venue um you know their role of you know managing distribution centers and shipping and receiving and and taking care of all the i mean you know they will say they are the the thing that binds us all together you know because without them you can't do anything um but you know it it truly was like it was one of those things when you look back on it was you know they were they were kind of that sauce that kind of kept everybody together they were the the stickiness in there that if you needed something done, you always knew you could go to logistics. But I moved on from there, and uh, I actually ended up on the Soldier Hollow team uh, as the venue manager um, in uh, late 2000. So there was a little transition period during the test events of 2000 where I kind of wore a couple hats of being venue manager, but also being the on the logistics side of the fence before making a full transition um, onto uh, the Soldier Hollow team with uh, with Phil and Janine on the event management team and you know that January 2000 time period so
0: why don't you tell me a little bit about that transition how is it that you ended up moving from logistics <laughs> over to the venue manager at Soldier Hollow you um, just got bored of you ran out of quotes <laughs> like oh, i got to do something else uh no it was um my my heart i at
1: the end of the day my heart was very much an event uh, an event nerd um uh when we were at the dome, you know, you, we were in a role where we oversaw all these different functional teams as well too. Um, you know, so on a, on a Georgia dome game day, it would be the same thing. It was, you know, what's ticketing doing? How's our, uh, you know, waste and recycling going, uh, how are our ushers and ticket takers, you know, what about the media? What about the HVAC systems, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think my heart always had to pull that direction and I would end up probably in those conversations, uh, too often, even as the logistics guy, um, whenever we would sit in on meetings. So I just, I I constantly had this tug to, to be a part of that. And also I think just as I chatted more with, with Karen and what they were doing on venue, I kind of started to miss it a little. Um, and, um, and as they started to ramp up the teams, uh, it just, the opportunity presented itself to actually join a venue team. And, and for me, it, it, it it brought out a lot out of me that I didn't realize, realize was there. Um, you know, I probably never admitted this to Phil, especially during, during the games, but, um, but you know, the, his Cirque du Soleil, like let's create something special Western experience was very much against my background. I was an event person. I was, Let's bring them in. They watch a football game. Let's go home and let's be done. And the the Western experience was not that. It was like let's bring them in and let's have them hang out for a little while and let's put on a little small concert and let's also have you know all of these other exhibits and let's bring some bison and you know it just for me it just blew my mind and, and frustrated me then. But looking back on it, it, it really crafted who I was of you know, or who I am now as let's create experiences for people. Um, And that's what Phil was doing. And um, as much as it drove me batty uh, then and a little crazy, um, you know, I definitely look back on it now and go, yep. Like that's, that's what changed my perspective of how to how to put an event on and what it means to, to put an
0: event on. Well, I want to get to this Western experience in (laughs) just a second, but before I do, if I, if I summarize this, if I understood correctly, Basically, you made the move, at least in part, because the girl you chased from Atlanta was having more fun than you were.
1: Uh, that would be a great way to summarize it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it it was, it, you know, I don't know if there was actually a good logical reason why I made the move. I think I did just miss the event, the the oversight of multiple business units and functions, and I continued to pull myself into it. But I think that's probably a good way to summarize it. She would She would uh if you lended her that credit that she was having more fun, she would she would appreciate that, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Well, she can listen to this after we've edited it and published it and and she can make up her own mind. But let's come back to that Western experience. You mentioned that you were not initially a believer. Uh you had a different approach. So explain to me the conversion process. How did you become a believer in the Western experience?
1: Um so definitely was not a believer. Um, you know, I looked, uh, I looked at events much more traditional, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier of let's have people in, they're here to watch cross country skiing or they're here for biathlon and then let's, let's exit them out the door. Um, but as, as the, the schedule began to roll out and we started to see, and, and I understood the gaps in the schedule of we might have an hour between one event to the next or there's going to be a training session and then we're going to, uh, you know, have another biathlon event. Um, you know, what made me start to see it a little bit more was, uh, was, was not just Phil's passion for it, but also just the greater community. I think Heber being two hours away from downtown Salt Lake City is they wanted a way to put their stamp on it. And there were so many community members uh, that wanted to find that, that, that way to, to put their stamp on it. So whether it was the Heber creeper and the idea of, Hey, let's put them on a train and let's sell an extra ticket package to that, or uh horse drawn sleigh rides throughout the venue, they wanted their way to put that, uh, you know, their own personal stamp to it. And I think you know, as I went through notes and I'm looking back, like there was one day, pardon me, there was one day where we had, you know, visits to the venue team and it was like, oh yeah, we've got Al Roker from the Today Show and the Crown Prince of Norway, uh, you know, out to see us today. And then, you know, and then the next day it was like, oh, we've got the President of OC, we've got Princess Anne from Britain, we've got the Crown Prince of Norway again, we've got the President of Finland, we've got Mitt Romney, oh, and Al Roker is doing the weather again from the area. You know, so it became one of those things of, Holy cow, like this became you know that 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 iconic piece that that Heber really wanted uh, that the community really wanted. And I think, um, you know, for me, I started to believe it once I started to see it a little bit during the test events because even leading up to the test events is I was still like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be just painful at times because I'm not just managing. Hey, let's do a post-event press conference, and let's get people in, and let's get people out. Is now I'm managing all of these other little minutiae schedules of everybody in between. Of how do we get these people on the venue, or how do we get these people off the venue, or you know, are those you know real guns or fake guns that they're bringing on the venue? Because we wanted to celebrate everything that was a part of you know the the Wild West, if you will, and 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 uh, and celebrate Heber as a community and, and everything about the area.
0: Well, it's interesting. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation today how your agency is all about creating experiences, and that's what you feel like you've been doing. That's kind of your life's work there is creating experiences for your clients. Before Salt Lake, perhaps you were more of an operations person, and Salt Lake, uh, through the Soldier Hollow experience, gave you a glimpse of what it's like to be an experience creation person.
1: I, I would agree with that very much so. I think um, my uh, one of my mentors from the Georgia Dome, who I still stay in touch with uh, to this day, Ken Jefferson, and he had worked the 96 Atlanta Olympics uh, at the Dome. And, um, you know, he was always very much of, you know, it's operations. And that's what we're doing is we're getting people in, we're getting people out. and I, And I think the Dome was very much that way during the 96 games. I wasn't a part of it. Um, but just in the stories I heard because they had basketball on one side and gymnastics and it was move people in and move people out. And so I had been kind of programmed down that path. And I think, you know, uh, like I said, I think, you know, I, I don't know if I want to give Phil all that credit, but it truly was like Phil opened my eyes to, you know, a little bit of that Cirque du Soleil world of, you know, it wasn't just come in and put on this simple little production. It was everything else that went around it um and for me you know i think to this day i think you know the salt lake games really really did that um is is it opened my eyes to um how much more an event can be and how special it is and how those little nuggets are those things that people take away at the end of the day um that that they're going to forever remember of uh that moment in time of when you know they're riding a bus in and you know they see you know three or four bison along the the pathway in and you know, they have that aha moment of like, oh, my gosh, like, can you believe that that's here? And, you know, to me, those are those little nuggets that while it was tough to get there with the you know, Bureau of Land Management to rationalize that, yes, we're going to have them there. It's going to be safe. Nobody's going to pet them or touch them or try to do anything. Um, you know, at the end of the day, those are the little things that people, I think, took away and said that was that was pretty special and a pretty, pretty amazing moment.
0: Well, we had uh, Chad Salmala on a couple of weeks ago. We aired his episode last week. And he mentioned that the the design and the layout of that venue is quite innovative and very good for the spectator, but it was challenging operationally. And so I'm curious to hear from your thoughts as venue manager. You know, what were some of the challenges with operating that venue and some of the creative ways that you, the creative things that you came up with to address some of the challenges?
1: Um, and, and Chad is spot on, um, I, from a spectator standpoint, it was, it was, it was great. Um, as they came into the venue in and out of the venue, it was, you know, they, I believe had the feeling that everything was very smooth and simple. Um, some of the, some of our challenges really resulted, um, you know, f- post nine eleven um, because we had had, uh, athlete parking and, um, uh, and all of our staff parking was all on venue or close to venue. Um, but then all of a sudden a lot of us had to go off venue. Um, and so a lot of our complications was because our fence line really moved, uh, out and pushed away. Um, you know, Chad brought up the, the bath and, and bringing the weapons on, I believe in, in his podcast. And I, and I had totally forgotten about having to purchase uh, all of those, uh, those covers, uh, for, for the, uh, for the rifles. And, um, you know, but it was always, I think, you know, the innovative little things like that, I think, um, you know, to get people to not think that they were in this, you know, like the Western experience was purposely set up and designed to, make people feel like they didn't have to walk 400 yards from where the bus drops them off now to walk all the way to the venue. It was, you know, we crafted those unique ways to to get that feeling, but there was always, um, you know, challenges with the two venues, um, and especially with the two sports, um, and not in a bad way. Um, but just in a, you know, wanting access to certain areas at certain times, um, you know, I, I really feel for, for the, the event staff that, you know, were checking credentials into the lodge because, you know, you, during a biathlon event, you know, they were the ones that had access, but there was no way to know if somebody was a biathlon athlete or a cross country athlete or a Nordic combined athlete or, um, you know, so they were the ones most challenged. And I think that's where, you know, at some point you also have to entrust your training and your conversations with them to educate them to say, Hey, like when we get to about this point in the day, like you're going to need to put your guard down just a little because we've got to have some latitude and some flexibility um, with so many different sports coming and going. Not that it made it unsafe or anything like that, but uh, to ensure that athletes could get where they needed to go or to cross the snow from, you know, from the cross the biathlon snow over onto the cross country snow, just so that way they could train or they could prepare or whatever the case may be. I think one of the ones that you saying that now, as we talked, one of the, the craziest things and uh, that I I can remember dealing with is our, our hand-washing stations starting to freeze. Um, and how did we keep them thawed out? Um, and, you know, so it was like little things like that are the things that caught us uh, off guard was, you know, it can be a beautiful day out, but if it was never getting above 20 degrees, well, the, the portable hand-washing stations, they weren't working, you know, that day. So it was, okay, how do we, how do we keep them thawed out? You know, do, you know, are we putting more hot water in it to thaw it out? How do we also maintain that it's sanitary? Um, you know, so there was always something, you know, a a little thing that caught us here and there, but, um, you know, I, I think we just, we had a really, really good venue team that also understood each other's pain points, uh, well enough and, and to work through it, whether it was, you know, transportation issues with, um, Steve Kuhn, who I know I butted heads with a number of times on routes that we were bringing athletes to venues, but at the same time is you know negotiating almost of hey can we can we come thirty minutes early here but I'm going to take thirty minutes away here you know from our you know delegates that are uh, that are coming to the venue um, you know so a lot of it just comes down to just uh, you know I think at the end of the day a really a really good venue team that trusted in one another to to know that we were all working toward a, a common goal, not working against
0: one another. I want to dig into that a little bit more. You mentioned this venue team worked together uh, quite well. In these high pressure situations, those kinds of teams can come apart at the seams. You know, they uh, if they're not led appropriately, what was it that allowed you and Phil to create a really cohesive team that could deliver an amazing experience in spite of the challenges and the obstacles that you faced,
1: you know, between, you know, Phil and Janine, uh, and myself, a lot of it was, and, and I'll use myself as the example. And even, even Phil and I, and I can't remember Janine's background, but this was Phil's first Olympics. This was my first Olympics, but some of the people that we were not, some, a lot of the people we were working with, this was their third, fourth, fifth Olympics. Uh, and so i think relying on on their knowledge also to educate us as to what they've seen work uh in other situations um at other venues um was very important for us um and and knowing that we didn't always have the right answer you know we had a vision of what we felt like was correct um but but that we could rely on on that you know experience from so many other games i think um you know, Bill Costco was our IT guy and he was, he was my father's age. You know, he had worked so many games. And so when anything IT related came up, I, I, there was nothing I was going to be able to educate him on, train him on, provide guidance on. But if I, but if he knew that I was going to rely on his word and trust his word, I think that, that lended credibility to not just me being a you know, 27 year old that you entrusted in this craziness. Um, but it, it also lended credibility to, to Phil and Janine of, you know, Hey, we didn't always have the answers, but um, you know, we, we took, took all of that feedback, brought it in and, and said, you know what, you know, you're right. Like this is going to be a better solution than what, what we would have come up with. So I think, you know, leveraging all of that experience for us was extremely important because I'm a kid from Georgia. You know, I, I had never been on cross-country skis. I'd never been in a biathlon range. I'd never ski jumped before, done a Nordic combined. You know, I'm a stick and ball kid, you know, basketball, football, baseball, um, you know, so this was a whole new place for me. So I think relying on that experience was extremely important for us.
0: Oh, that's really, really interesting. Now. The games go on, and and uh, Soldier Hollow really became a a showcase venue for the games, and something that the locals and everybody could be really proud of. Then the games end, you know, (laughs) and we move on in our lives. So, what did you do after Salt Lake? What did you you stayed in this space, but did you immediately go back to Atlanta, or were you going around other places uh, in the country? What was what was life like post games for you, Andy?
1: Um well, I had to get married <laughs> um Karen and I had our own uh our own wedding plans that we were putting together um so we got married may twenty fifth two thousand two um we had originally talked about getting married in two thousand one, like fall of two thousand one pregames. um but ultimately decided that was way too crazy to try to pull off and make happen so uh you know, for us, we went from all right, we've just done this wonderful games. Um, you know, we've had a great time. She was a Paralympics venue. I was a Paralympics venue. So we didn't see each other for you know, whatever, 40 days, 50 days. And, um, and then instantly had to turn all that off. And we had to write our own edits, uh, for our wedding of here's what the timeline looks like, like people flying on Friday at this time. And it was, it was very funny to event people planning a wedding, uh, in the middle of an Olympics of, um, you know, I really felt felt bad for the the people back here in Atlanta. We were married here in Atlanta because they were probably not prepared for two event people to uh, to, to come in and be a part of that uh, of of just kind of the bomb that went off of what do you mean? I've got to do this at this exact time and this is this exact time um, So for us, it was planning a wedding, um, which you know turned out to be you know one of the greatest events for us, um, you know post games um, But I ended up going into uh, college athletics, followed my passion into college athletics and at the University of Virginia uh, and University of Houston, and then came back to Atlanta ultimately, uh, which was home for me um, and had been kind of a second home for Karen as well, too. So for us, uh, you know, back here to Atlanta and then uh, and
0: been here ever since. It's the longest we've ever lived anywhere.
1: Uh, And we've been here since 2008 now. So
0: so was the wedding more of an operation or was it more of an experience
1: <laughs> uh, i'm going to say it was a, a it was it was probably more of an operation <laughs> um until we could get to the wedding day um you know it was it was definitely more of an operation it was a you know for example we couldn't uh we couldn't register for our gifts in salt lake city uh you know most of the places that we would register we're on the East coast and Salt Lake city didn't have that infrastructure yet of, uh, all of the, the larger department stores or and such that we would register at. So, you know, it was definitely a lot of operation for us of, okay, we're going to fly to Phoenix this weekend because we can register for all of our wedding stuff. And then we're going to fly back from Phoenix because we need to, you know, do this wedding shopping in this location. And, um, you know, so it was, it was, we definitely had our own little operational plan, uh, to, to get to, to may post
0: games for sure. Oh, that's awesome. That's a lot of fun. I really, really appreciate you sharing a little insight on that. Now, the last question I have for you w- with respect to the salt Lake games is uh, aside from your conversion from operations to Western experience person, any takeaways, any learnings from there that helped you as you continued on in your career and events? Um,
1: I, you know and I alluded to it earlier, i think um you know always you know for me uh and and this is a little hokey, but it's it's kind of like trust your gut, you know trust trust what what you feel is right and what is correct um you know one one of the the craziest moments that I had out there in salt lake City was um uh and i i mentioned the Crown prince of Norway earlier, i think um but uh we had an event get uh postponed from one day to the next day um and the crown prince of norway comes by the ticket office and for us our ticket protocol was you know we weren't issuing free tickets to the next day you know it was it's a different day it's a different ticket and so our ticket manager was following that um he didn't appreciate that so our uh paul Freudensprung, who was uh came it came and met with us um he was our interpreter that um uh brought me in and over and says you know here's what we've got the crown prince of norway has tickets for today's you know biathlon event um but since it's being postponed until tomorrow you know he would like you know 20 tickets to tomorrow's event which is what he had for today's event and the ticket manager won't won't issue those and my gut was like well Like we're in a big open space. Like this is not that big of a deal. But at the same time as there was just protocol in the game. So, um, so I shared with him, you know, this is protocol and this is, you know, this is how this is going to work. Like I need to reach out to the main operations center, get a confirmation of a couple of things and understand it. And he says something to me, I have no idea what he says to this day. And Paul looks to me and goes, he appreciates that you're making this call, but he is not very happy with you and just kind of left it at that. And I have no idea what this gentleman said to me. I'm sure he was not happy with me um, because, you know, a, he was a dignitary. um, But, you know, at the same time as I think he understood, like, do you see how big the venue is? Like, why can you just not issue me, you know, tickets for the next day? So lo and behold, I called down to the main operations center and they say exactly that, like, yes, just give the man 20 tickets. Like you're in the biggest operational space so that's what we did. We issued those 20 tickets, but it is something that forever comes back to my mind of like, um, you know, trust your gut, you know, do what's right. You know, what's right. Um, and I think, you know, uh, at the end of the day, that's, that is something that I, I try to continue to apply, you know, to this day is I think we all know what is the right thing to do. Um, I think that's what was great about our team and our staff was, uh, you know, we all felt like we were doing things for all the right reasons. And I think that was, uh, to me, that's why the Western experience came off the way it did. Um, I think that's why, uh, you know, our venue kind of had that appeal and that luster um, is because I felt like, um, you know, we didn't have the pressure from being in the city um, and we could kind of do things on feel a little bit more versus on protocol.
0: That's a really interesting lesson. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, dealing with dignitaries is always fun, uh, no doubt. <clears throat> so. Uh, very, very good. Before we get to the final segment, any other stories pop into your head that you feel you need to share? Um,
1: two really that, that come to mind. Um, one, neither of these are related to, to the games themselves. They're related to just what was great about being in Salt Lake city. Um, and, uh, the first one was, um, uh, Molly Mazzolini, I think she, uh, they, they're still in Salt Lake City. Uh, we've kept in touch with Molly through the years. And we tell this story all the time when we tell people about um, our experience of tailgating at a BYU football game. Um, you know, I, am, I'm, I went to the University of Georgia, SEC football, basketball. Like, we know how to tailgate. We know what it looks like. Uh, Molly went to Kentucky and uh, in Tulane and Tulane was playing BYU in football so we were like hey let's tailgate let's go down to the game you know we'll make food we'll have drinks whatever the case may be so we do and we go down to this football game and it's the opening game of the year for BYU you know we think we're getting there late uh in sec culture mind and you know we get there 3 hours before kickoff and we pull into the parking lot and there's nobody there and there's nobody checking for anything or doing anything and we're 20 yards to the front door and we are like what is what is going on? Like, do what, what is happening right now? And about an hour before the game started, the parking lot starts to fill up and everybody loads in and goes into the game. And, uh, and we just kind of sat there in amazement, like this is not what football is supposed to be like. This is not Georgia football or sec football, uh, that, that we know it. And, and it's forever. One of those things we just get the greatest laugh out of because, you know, the BYU football tailgating experience is not exactly what we, we had hoped for uh, in our visit out there.
0: That's a super funny story. Of course, Molly, um, being from Kentucky or attending Kentucky, you've you know, that we always have a little uh, pain in our heart here. Uh, those of us who are <laughs> University of Utah alumni for Kentucky really being the bane <laughs> of <Yeah>. our existence <laughs> in the 1990s, uh, the the basketball superpower that we just could not defeat. We came close, but uh, we couldn't quite get over the hump there. So super interesting. Thank you so much uh, for sharing all of those stories. And I guess we'll move to our our final segment here. All right. Great three questions first one's music related you had a great time here in salt lake it sounds like by all accounts but is there a particular song that you hear today and it it reminds you immediately of your time uh, working for the salt lake 2002 games
1: there is um and this was the easiest of the uh, of these questions to come up with um there was an event and i could not remember what it was i've asked a couple people um uh, you know, what, what the event was, but it was at the E center, um, probably a week, maybe two weeks before the games. And it was like a stars on ice event. Um, but it was a mix of like a stars on ice coupled with a concert. Um, and, uh, there were a couple of different musicians that sang, but one of the ones that stuck out, um, was, uh, the band was called the calling, um, wherever you will go, um, was the name of the song. And for whatever reason, anytime it came on from that moment on, it was, it always brought me back to that moment of, Oh yeah, we were at the E center watching this show and this guy comes out and, and he had, you know, the lead singer had grabbed a scarf, you know, that it was a salt Lake scarf. And, you know, he just had this total look to him of like, I'm a a trendy hip guy, you know, grunge rocker. And now I'm here in salt Lake city and we're celebrating the games and, you know, it's probably what all the shows at the, the plaza looked like that I didn't get to attend. Um, but that's the one that comes back to me almost immediately. I mean, anytime I hear it, I'm always brought to that moment in time. You know, a couple of weeks before the games, the
0: calling, wherever you will go is the song that continues to come back. All right, the calling wherever you will go. I can hear it in my mind playing now and it will probably be stuck there for a long time. Yep. Uh we'll put that on our Spotify playlist, which is called Salt Lake two thousand two retrospective, also like the podcast. So that was the easy question. Let's get to a harder one. The food question. <laughs> a place that you like to go eat. Could have been there in Salt Lake or out in West Valley by the East Center or over there in Heber. Uh, a favorite hangout?
1: Um so this this was a toss-up for me, um, and I've heard it mentioned a number of times. The Trolley Wing Company, we were regulars. Um, Karen actually lived across the street at 6th and 6th in the apartments there. Um, I want to say that I, between Brad Eggert and myself, I believe one day we went there three times. Um, we even knew the owners well enough that if they needed to run inside to go to the restroom, we would tend to the bar for the moment, um, but we would go there and just play cards and hang out. But that was, to me, too easy. I felt like we all went to the trolley at some point in time. Um, <clears throat> but for me, the one that really stuck out, and it's the one that anytime people visited, I always, always, always took them to, uh, was up in Heber. Um, and I, I don't believe it's open when we visited a couple years ago. Um, I don't believe it's there anymore, but it's called the Snake Creek Grill. Um, and it was just this great little restaurant right in in downtown. Um, and it wasn't in Heber. It was closer to the homestead resort. It was out kind of that way. Um, I guess more midway, I guess is technically that, that city. Um, but it, it was in midway kind of in that little old country square. And I believe the chef had come from one of the restaurants in park city, um, and just opened, uh, kind of their own vision up, but it was this quaint little place. Um, but anybody that visited, I mean, we took all of my family members ate there, all of Karen's family members ate there. Um, would love to have seen it when we visited a few years ago, but uh, I did not see it in its original spot and it looked like it might, might have been closed, but Snake Creek Grill was a, uh, was a favorite. Our venue team ate there often.
0: The Snake Creek Grill. All right, well, we'll add it to our list of restaurants that no longer are around. Okay, final question for you today is our Goosebump Moment question. A particular memory of the games that just gives you all the warm and fuzzy feelings?
1: Um. <clears throat> So it's, uh, it's the day that I got my job. Um, it was, uh, June 29th, um, of, uh, of 2000. I had interviewed that morning, uh, with the logistics team and had no idea where it was going to go. It was, you know, it was a little bit of a, a Hail Mary to go out there anyways. Um, but I'm playing my round of golf um, right afterwards with, uh, an older gentleman at uh, Forestdale golf club, like the little nine hole munies uh, that are all throughout the city. And, uh, on hole number eight, I hit a hole in one and I just in a uh, like total shock and was like, wow, this is amazing. And come off the course and go inside and, uh, you know, share with the, the club pro. And was like, you know, Hey, I hit a hole in one. Like, you know, do y'all do anything? Like what happens when you hit a hole in one? And he goes, Oh, do you have a witness? And, uh, and I said, uh, yeah, like I sure do. You know, this, this gentleman, this gentleman here. And, um, and he goes, Oh, great. You know, it's like, so we're filling out some paperwork and he goes, can I get your name? And I said, Oh yeah, you know, I'm, you know, Andy Williams. And he goes, and he stops and looks at me for a second. And then he looks at the gentleman that I was playing with and he goes, Dean. Did he really just say his name is Andy Williams? And Dean goes, yeah, he sure did. And he goes, man, the papers are never going to believe this. Andy Williams hit a hole in one witnessed by Dean Martin. And it wasn't the Dean Martin, but it was just two of these crooners of old time that just hit a hole in one and witnessed it right there. In, uh, at the Salt Lake Muni course, um, And then, you know, so I had that like crazy moment and then I walk out to my car and check my phone and I was offered a job and I was like, you know, I'm never going to have much better of a day than this of hitting a hole in one and getting a job here in Salt Lake City. Like that's was probably the biggest highlight I could get to uh, in my time out there.
0: That's awesome. Uh, Dean Martin, Andy Williams, uh, that's (laughs) (laughs) it's just too funny. You you can't make that kind of stuff up. And what a fantastic way to start your career there in Salt Lake. Of course, the pessimist would say, well, then it was all downhill from there. If that was your best day, but uh, best memory. But I, I have to say, Andy, it was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. And I really enjoy you taking the time to share all of your memories. Now, if people want to learn more about your new venture, your your new agency the services you provide maybe you could help them in some way or if they just want to reconnect about uh, Saltley 2002 what's the best way for them to contact you
1: uh my email is a williams at clearwillconsulting.com um website clearwillconsulting.com so clear as in see through will started my last name um, clearwillconsulting.com. Um, you can even go through that and it'll feed you with a form that way, or feel free to call or text. Um, I will chat with anyone whenever, uh, my number is 404-840-9177. Uh, but would love to connect with, with anyone and everyone. There's a, a group of us that have, uh, through this, I think Amy Murray may have mentioned this in her call that have stayed connected, uh, here over the last, uh, you know, 20 years. Um, and we've actually gone on trips and outings and we host our own zoom meetings, uh, every Friday night as well too. So if there's any interest to connect with a bunch of the the hockey team and then this lone soldier hollow guy, uh, that sticks his head in every now and then, um, you know, we chat most every, every single Friday as well too. So if there's any interest to connect, we're always, we're always there. All right.
0: Perfect. Andy, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our humble little podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Andy, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day.